thanks for connecting with our online content at Holy Trinity Church in Richmond. We really hope that what we share with you will be a blessing and will help you to continue to grow in your knowledge and love of God. In 2018, I had the opportunity to spend some time in Jordan, uh, and while I was there, I visited the homes of Syrian refugees. Uh, I sat drinking tea with a man, or a few different men, and as we sat drinking tea, we could hear the bombs raining down on Syria, not very far away from where we were. It was an unusual moment to be sitting drinking tea together, life going on as normal, with bombs raining down around us. But that's not the thing that struck me most. What struck me most about that engagement was that as I shared the good news of Jesus, a man who was there told me that I should focus less on the cross and that Christians should take off cross necklaces and remove crosses from their churches because so many people in history had died on crosses. Instead, he said, we should wear necklaces depicting the empty tomb. That was unique. There was only one, and that should be our focus, he said. The cross matters. Despite thousands of deaths on them, there is one death on a cross which was unique. It was the the death of the Lord Jesus. His cross was unique. It was the cross on which the King of glory died as a sacrifice for our sin so that we might be freed from the power of death. On that cross, we were given a new and eternal future. On that cross, an exchange was made. The righteous for the unrighteous. And we were justified in the death of Jesus. That's why it's so central. That's why some of us wear it as necklaces. But my friend was right. I think Christians often undervalue the empty tomb. The Apostle John this morning will move our eyes from the cross to the empty tomb so that we might believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. We're going to see this morning that Jesus was missing and then that Jesus was found as we walk with Mary and Peter and John to the empty tomb. Why don't we pray? Father God, we are so thankful that we can meet together like this this morning that we can celebrate your empty tomb and the resurrection from the dead. Lord, as we sit under your word, would you help us to think about who it is that we say you are and every day make you more and more the Lord of our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Uh, Friends, as we go through, there are sermon notes and a handout for you in your pew sheet. If you want to use that, that may be helpful for you as we track through. Uh, And oftentimes I'm looking to give out chocolate for people who are using their sermon notes and have their Bibles open. If you haven't already have enough Easter chocolate, then make sure that is you this morning. Uh, Now, when we read John's Gospel, we know that it canvasses Jesus' life from a different perspective to the other Gospel writers. 
Uh, Matthew, Mark, and John, uh, sorry, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we call the synoptic gospels because they provide a fairly linear account of Jesus' ministry and life. Those three gospels share a lot of common material and they come back to the same key events. But John is different. The detail of how things happened isn't important to John as theology is. I think we see that really clearly at the start of his gospel. He doesn't start with the birth of Jesus or a genealogy. He starts with the meta-narrative that Jesus was the word before he was made flesh. That is the approach that John takes. In his account of the resurrection, John tells us that early on the first day of the week, the day after the Sabbath, Mary Magdalene made her way to the tomb. He doesn't tell us what the other gospel writers tell us. He doesn't tell us whether she is alone or what her intent is. He focuses on what she finds when she gets there. I wonder if you can imagine Mary Magdalene's thoughts and feelings when she came to the tomb and saw that the stone blocking the entrance had been rolled away. Just two days before, she'd seen Jesus die on a Roman cross. He was undeniably dead. A spear had been thrust into his side just to make sure. His body had been taken down from the cross and it was prepared for burial by Mary and other women who had been with Jesus. She knew that he was dead and his body had been laid right here in the tomb that had belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. That stone was rolled over the entrance and temple guards were sent there to watch over this tomb. In all of this, Mary had come now and her expectations weren't met. She had gone expecting to find the stone firmly in place, the guards there, Jesus' body in the tomb, but all was silent. The tomb was empty. And so in a fog of grief and confusion, she goes to find someone to help, someone who can answer her questions. She runs, verse 2 tells us, to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved, John, the writer of this account. And she goes and she tells them what she has found. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him, she says. You can imagine the hurt they would have felt, can't you? The numbness and the shock. They've done what? Jesus had already suffered the horrific indignity of a criminal's death. And now to make things worse, his body was missing. And so verse 3, they started for the tomb and they ran. John got there first. And seeing the tomb just as Mary had described it, he looked more closely but he didn't go in. And what he saw there was a surprise. Jesus' body was gone, just as Mary had told him, but the linen that Jesus was wrapped in was still there. He carefully records it for us in verse 5. Peter wasn't far behind verse 6, and he is totally true to form. He doesn't muck around with a peek into the tomb. He barrels in and sees not only the strips of linen, but also the cloth that had covered Jesus' face. These grave clothes are covered in expensive spices. These grave clothes are valuable. John 
joined Peter in the tomb, verse 8. And as he did so and came in and saw, something changed. John and Peter's expectations weren't met. After Mary's report, they'd expected to see nothing at all in the tomb. They expected to find a tomb that was completely empty, robbed, cleaned out. What they didn't expect to find was Jesus' body missing and the most valuable things of all left behind in the tomb. In John's mind, something changed at that moment. Jesus being alive was the only plausible explanation. What are the other options? Uh, Perhaps the religious leaders who'd had Jesus crucified in the first place wanted to make his body disappear. Maybe that's an option. But it doesn't fit. They were terrified of Jesus' claim that he would rise from the dead. And so they went to Pilate on a day where they should have had absolutely nothing to do with a pagan, and they organised a guard for the tomb so that the people who followed Jesus couldn't say that his body was gone and he was raised. The disciples hadn't taken his body. Mary and John and Peter knew that for a fact. The priests were terrified that they would try, and that's why they had the guards there. The disciples had nothing to do with Jesus' disappearance. Maybe his body had been stolen by grave robbers. It wasn't unusual for bodies to be taken by grave robbers at the time. But Mary and Peter and John knew that there is no way they would have taken the risk to attack the temple guard. There's no way they would have taken the time to carefully try and unwrap Jesus' body, leaving behind burial linen that was valuable. If you were going to take anything at all from a grave, it was the burial linen and the spices you were after. It sounds a bit gross, but it could be washed and resold. That is the thing that has the value. There was no value in a dead body. John saw the strips of linen and the piece that had covered Jesus' head and he believed, we're told. He had seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. Jesus had called out to him to come out of the tomb, and when Lazarus had, do you remember what he was wearing? He was wearing the grave clothes, and he had the bandage still around his head. So this resurrection was different. Don Carson says most of the early witnesses came to faith in Jesus as the resurrected Lord, not because they could not find his corpse, but because they found Christ alive. But John testifies that he, before he... uh, Before he came to such faith in Jesus, before he saw Jesus' resurrected form, and he took this step not simply because the tomb was empty, but because the grave clothes were still there. For John, this was the moment. This was proof that Jesus was alive and that Jesus was changed. His body had been raised from the dead, passing through the linen grave clothes, just like he would later pass through doors and walls to interlocked buildings. John believed, even though they didn't yet understand from the scriptures that Jesus had to rise from the dead, verse 9 tells us. Do you know, I think that admission, that they didn't yet understand from the scriptures, adds more weight to the truth claims. I'm not sure about you, but I'm not overly keen on broadcasting it when I don't understand the scriptures. 
Now, there are some specific places that come to mind that maybe they were thinking of as in time they understood the scriptures pointing to Jesus' death. Psalm 16.10, Isaiah 52 and 53 are places our minds go, aren't they? Even Leviticus 23.11, Hosea 6.2, they all build a picture of these events that can be interpreted as pointing to the Lord Jesus. But all of the Old Testament points to him, doesn't it? From creation itself to the earliest entry of sin in the Garden of Eden. When we see the necessity of sacrifice under the law. The rescue of the Israelites from Egypt where God would pass over and a lamb was slain. When we see the exile of Israel and their redemption and rebuilding when we think about the themes of rebellion against God and walking away and the need for atonement and the sacrifice that's made, all of that to be right with God, it brings us to this point where we see those things fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. He is the one who is the promised king, the delivering Messiah, and he makes a way for restoration with God through the forgiveness of sin. Yet even with all that knowledge, simple faith in the resurrection of Jesus was possible without having everything nailed down. Isn't God good? Isn't God good in making his good news available to us? We don't have to be of high uh, character. We don't have to be brilliant academics. We don't have to be high-flying, fast-paced super-achievers. We don't have to have all of the answers and an exhaustive understanding of the prophecies relating to the Lord Jesus. We don't need to be able to defend every objection someone might have to God's word. We just need to respond in faith. No matter who we are or where we come from, we can believe in the Lord Jesus. And that simple truth is emphasised in Mary's encounter as the missing Jesus was found. After the others had left, Mary was there crying. And she bends down into the tomb, and what does she see? She sees two angels dressed in white, clear evidence of the power of God at work. And the angels don't understand her sorrow. Look at verse 13. Woman, why are you crying? She's crying because she's expecting a body. And she is filled with sorrow that she can't see it. She was expecting a new kingdom, a reigning Messiah, deliverance and salvation and new life, and it's all come to nothing. Jesus is dead, and even his body is missing. And then he's standing behind her, mistaken for the gardener. As Jesus speaks to her, he brings us to the heart of Mary's sorrow. Her expectations haven't been met. Look at verse 15. He asks her so gently, who is it you're looking for? In other words, what are you expecting to find here, Mary? She's expecting a body. And she's filled with sorrow that she can't see it. 
And then Jesus opens her eyes to what she should expect when he says her name, Mary. It's the moment when the fog lifts and she sees Jesus for who he is, the crucified and risen Lord. She hears his voice and she recognizes him. It's a beautiful outworking of Jesus' earlier teaching in his ministry. Do you remember John chapter 10, where Jesus said, I will call my sheep by name and they will recognize me. They will know my voice. Do you remember the moment you came to faith, where you heard Jesus call your name? Maybe you'd grown up in church, attending Sunday school, here week after week, and then one day you realised that this wasn't just a story, but Jesus was real. He had saved us. That God wasn't out there somewhere distant, far off and stern. He was near wanting to be close and personal, to have a relationship with us, to make us his own child adopted into his family. He called to you by name. He calls his sheep by name. And they know his voice. When he calls us and we are his, we respond by recognising him as he is, the crucified and risen Lord. He is the Messiah, the Saviour, God in flesh, the one who was crucified and raised from the dead. He is the one who left behind an empty tomb. Mary knows his voice instantly. Rabboni, teacher, just what she used to call him before. And as she says it, she reaches out to grab Jesus and to hang on to him. His response in verse 17 is one of the trickiest passages to translate in the New Testament. It literally says, don't touch me, which is really hard to unpack. Why not touch him? Was it because he hadn't yet ascended to the Father? Because just a week later, he would invite Thomas to touch him specifically. And so there's something happening here that we don't quite understand. And so what we read these words that say, don't touch me, is don't cling to me. Don't hold on to me. In saying this, Jesus is reframing Mary's expectation. He is the Messiah King. He is alive. He has been raised from the dead on the third day but he's going to bring about his kingdom and rule in a new paradigm. She doesn't have to cling to Jesus as if his body had been snatched away. He is alive and he is with her. Mary's grasped that he is risen, but she doesn't understand that he's not immediately going to ascend to the Father or even that in time he will ascend to the Father. Jesus is helping her to see that she needs to reframe her expectations of who he is and what he will do. In the moment she's standing, it is not the time for holding on to Jesus and keeping him to herself as if this were a private dream come true. His direction to her is so clear. She is to share the good news of Jesus with the disciples before he ascends. 
throughout this passage and building on what Bishop Jay showed us last week as we thought about the expectations of the people when Jesus came into Jerusalem. John is again highlighting the expectations of those who were close to Jesus in those last few days of his life and shortly after. And I think as we consider their expectations, it raises a question for us. What are our expectations of Jesus? Maybe some of us think he's a good moral teacher. Maybe he's the reason that we gather to sing together. Maybe he gives us new friends and a wonderful community to be part of. Maybe he's the one who we hope will fix our broken relationships. He is those things, isn't he? And he can restore us, but he is so much more than that. John shows us who he really is so that our expectations can be right. Jesus isn't dead in a tomb. He is the risen Lord, the one who passed through grave clothes and death itself to offer us hope and new life. And in his power, the power of the Holy Spirit, which raised him from the dead, we can live the kind of new life described in the reading we heard in Colossians 3 this morning. A life where we can put to death whatever belongs to our earthly nature, and we can set our hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. The tomb is empty. Jesus is risen. It was a one of a kind, unique, long hoped for event. The death and resurrection of Jesus. The cross and the empty tomb are the heart of our Christian faith, aren't they? They are the promise and certainty of atonement with God that our sin is forgiven and life everlasting in the future kingdom is ours and that transformation is possible in the present age. What are our expectations of the Lord Jesus? They should be that he will be changing and refining and empowering us to be more and more his people as we share and live his risen life. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Father God, we thank you that you are risen from the dead. We thank you that you are the Lord of all. We thank you that John has helped us to consider the empty tomb. Lord, we want to be people of the cross, and we want to be people who are shaped by your empty tomb with a hope and a future with assurance that our sin is forgiven and that we will be raised to new life if our faith is in you. Lord, we don't just want to believe it. We want to live it. So would you please help us to live your risen life here and in eternity with you, that many might come to know and love you and join you in your new kingdom. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. If you'd like to connect with more of our online content at Holy Trinity in Richmond, you can do that by going to our YouTube page simply by searching for Richmond Anglican Aotearoa 
You can also touch base with us online at our website or on Facebook by searching with those same words. Friends, we're so thankful that you've joined us online and that you're enjoying our content. We really do hope and pray that God is blessing you through it. If you've got any feedback, you can touch base with me, zane at richmondparish.nz. Thanks so much for listening.